We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Again, pop culture's interest in space has been around for a lot longer than the American space program, and it remains alive and well. That will be abundantly clear at this evening's first Friday event at the St. Louis Science Center. Television has played a huge role in all of this, and that will be the topic tonight during one segment of the evening's events. Joining me in studio is Margaret Wiedekamp. She is the curator of space-themed popular culture at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. She's featured in the program at the Almanac Theater tonight, and she will discuss Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, and Babylon 5, space stations, and a changing frontier. Sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you. It, I think it really will be. I'm delighted to be here. Tell me about your, your job and what you're doing in, in, uh, in Washington at the Smithsonian. So I'm one of the curators at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. I'm in charge of a collection we call the Social and Cultural History of Spaceflight, which means I deal with the memorabilia of the actual space program Mm -hmm. and also with our space science fiction objects. So really it's the stories of how spaceflight has been remembered and how spaceflight has been imagined. How far back do you take it? Uh, We take it back to the 1930s, Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, um, looking at the kinds of toys that came out of the radio programs and the comic strips uh, that began uh, in the late 1920s, and then all the way up to, I have a wonderful collection of Babylon 5 memorabilia that became a part of the Smithsonian's National Collection. Do you include that famous uh, Orson Welles, H.G. Welles, uh, War of the Worlds program back in the late 30s? It's certainly something that I think about and that we talk about um, when I'm dealing with the artifacts. I have to have a three-dimensional object that I can physically mm-hmm. put on a shelf. But those um, stories of the ways that people have imagined what it might be like to have beings from another world are a big part of the kinds of stories that I'm trying to tell. Well, I, I'll just advise the audience if they haven't heard about this. This was a radio broadcast of the uh, v- version of War of the Worlds. Scared the heck out of people in New <laughs> Jersey and New York. They thought an actual invasion was taking place. Yes. It was done as a documentary. Done as, And it was um, very realistic, um, done by Orson Welles, and um, part of the both the enthusiasm and also kind of sometimes mania around spaceflight in the United States, which is a topic that I think has fascinated us for a long time. This may be a stretch, but how much do you think science fiction and some of that early stuff, the Buck Rogers and all the rest of it, actually influenced our space program? I think that if you talk to the people who actually build and fly um, the actual vehicles, many of them are space science fiction fans because Mm -hmm. it's some imagination, some vision of what they hope to be doing. I know in the 1990s, uh, Babylon 5, one of the shows I'll talk about tonight, was very popular at NASA amongst NASA Mm -hmm. employees because they had taken some of the science very seriously in this imagined world. I would suspect, too, that it probably... uh, ease the way a little bit for the space program because people are kind of plugged into it already. Well, and there were ways in the 1950s that spaceflight advocates actually used Walt Disney or Collier's Magazine to 
make space flight seem realistic and fundable. And those programs you mentioned during the 90s, and of course, they predate the 90s as, as well, but um, give me a little bit more about their, their influence on our times in the period of the 90s. So what I'm going to be talking about tonight at 8 o'clock at the St. Louis Science Center is uh, two shows from 1993 Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5. And those are in some ways kind of mature space science fiction adventures that built on what had been done in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and imagined these worlds on space stations at the same moment when the agreements that resulted in the actual International Space Station Mm -hmm. were being made. So there's a moment there where people culturally, politically, and in terms of technology are thinking about what is it going to require to live and work in space. At the time, with the understanding of the technology and what all of this looked like, was it pretty accurately portrayed on television? Babylon 5 really took some... um, detail from the way that people were thinking about this, imagining, for instance, a race of aliens that didn't breathe the same air that the humans did and had to always be in encounter suits when they were on the Babylon Mm -hmm. 5 space station. So you see varying degrees of fidelity to the actual science, but also a lot of reflections of contemporary social issues, political issues, um, and conversations that we're having being had in the broader broader world. Well, what were some of the social issues and political issues in particular? Well, for Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine, for Deep Space Nine, they're on a space station, and so it's really a look at what does integration look like in all of its complicated messiness when you are stuck together in one place and the show does not reset at the end of every episode the way that uh, television would have in the 60s or in the 1970s. You can go back farther than that with Star Trek and the fact that uh, there was really a lot to be read between the lines. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Uh, Star Trek began in 1966 as a show created by Gene Roddenberry and he was very forward-thinking in putting together a racially integrated group of men and women on the bridge of the Enterprise, including even a Russian in the second season Mm -hmm. uh, at the height of the Cold War. And I think it's important to remember that when that show was on the air, the civil rights movement was really still Mm -hmm. um, going. The women's rights movement had just begun. And he even threw in an alien, uh, Mr. Spock, on Mm -hmm. there. So uh, trying to envision what integration could look like. And it's probably playing someplace on this planet right now, still, 40, 50 years later. It's been a remarkably durable franchise, um, and that gives historians and scholars such as me a lot to play with when we're looking at the long history of that popular culture. This is not something I think many people uh, consider, historians and scholars getting into this. Give me some sense of, of your own studies of, the, of this uh, material. Well, I really got interested in this when I had a fellowship at the NASA headquarters history office when I was doing my doctoral work at Cornell in history. And I was also just on my private time, a big nerd and a fan of um, Star Trek The Next Generation, watching Deep Space Nine, and seeing a lot of connections between the science fiction that I was watching and the space history that I was researching and learning. And I created a course um, in the late 1990s called Gender, Race, Society, and Space that really blended those two things. And in many ways, that became the launching pad toward the career that I have now, being the curator for social cultural history at the Smithsonian. How how do you approach the gender and race issue then? 
I see it as an interesting reflection of the society. Popular culture so often reflects and resonates with the society, not because it's some magic mirror, but because the people who are creating these stories are products of their time and they're interested in having an active conversation about their time. And sometimes that's more easily done if you can defamiliarize things and set them on a space station as a war between two alien races rather than a direct discussion of some political issue that we're having right now. Bringing the the gender factor into the whole space program is an interesting phenomenon. It seemed to me, watching it evolve, that it it happened more easily than many people might have suspected. Am I wrong on that? I think so. In terms of uh, women in the actual space yeah. program, um, it's still a very small percentage. There have only been 50 or so women who've actually gone into space out of the 500 or so people who have been mm. in outer space. Um, many more so in the European or the American program than, say, the Soviet-Russian program. But... Um, it's interesting that uh, Dr. Sally Ride, who was the first American woman in space, flew on STS-7 in 1983, mm-hmm. was also a Star Trek fan. Oh, well, <laughs> you, would, you would think so. Uh, <laughs> is somebody getting into that particular field? I want to invite the audience to get into the uh, conversation. If you'd like to talk about pop culture in space, we'd love to hear from you. We have a call. And let's bring in Elliot calling from St. Louis and see what's on his mind. Elliot, you're on the air. Hey, um, thanks for taking my call. I, I'd love all of these shows, particularly Babylon 5 and DS9, but uh, my call is about Babylon 5. There is a story, which I was hoping she, your, your speak guest could verify, that the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab helped design one of the starships on Babylon 5, the, the Starfury little space fighter. Do, does she know about that? Is that true? I'm afraid I don't. That's a wonderful connection. Um, I would love to follow that up more. I know that when the designers are creating spaceships for these fictional universes. They take a lot of time to look at what's on the drawing boards at major aerospace companies and also to look at the kind of speculative fiction. What is the next generation that people might be thinking about? And then trying, especially since the late 1960s, to construct something that looks like it would work, that has a kind of logic to it visually in terms of where would the people be, where are the engines. That's a real leap forward from the undifferentiated flying saucers or pointy rockets that you would have seen in the 1940s and 1950s. Elliot, thank you so much for the call. How far ahead, if they were ahead at all, were some of these programs uh, in terms of what they were envisioning that hadn't happened yet? Well, I think if you think about the technologies that we have every day, we know that the inventor of the flip phone for Motorola was thinking very directly about the Star Trek communicator. And this is radio, so I can't do that. But everyone out there can do that flip motion with your hand sure. of how that opened, how Captain Kirk opened his, how you would open his your flip phone. Sure. But I think if you look at Star Trek The Next Generation, they had these little thin handheld tablet computers that they were walking around with, which in many ways really looked like they eventually, you know, they had iPads a generation before any of the Mm -hmm. rest of us got to use that. So I know that many times um, the technologists who are creating the new things are looking at 
the dreams that had been created in fiction and thinking about are there ways to make that real. Well, who were the writers and creators of these programs? Were they, as you described a little while ago, just science nerds or, or, or what? They were, and they um, tend to really cross over between interest in the real thing and interest in the mm. fictional world. So uh, Rick Sternbach, for instance, who was uh, one of the creators of many of the props for Paramount um, in the 80s and 90s um, in the Star Trek universe, would be reading on a regular basis in science magazines and technology magazines what were the next things new things, and then trying to think about how that would translate on television so that it would give the actors something to do and give you some sense of how that technology worked. This may seem like a strange question, but how would you define science fiction? It's a great question. Yeah. Um, science fiction really is fiction that tries to draw on real science and uh, <clears throat> extrapolate or defamiliarize the world that we're living in now in ways that allow us to tell these new adventure stories. So it's a little different from fantasy, where you might have a completely created world. Um, usually science fiction has some connection to science as we know it. Who did it best or better? Um, it really, in some ways, starts with the French. Um, so Jules Verne writes some of the uh, very first science fiction in the mid-19th century and imagines a, a trip to the moon with a group of um, folks putting themselves in basically a projectile and being shot out of a cannon uh, to the moon. But then we see those stories, uh, which George, George Melies, uh, some of the very first film is, again, A Trip to the Moon. And so there's a long history of creative people writing stories, creating film, creating in television, and thinking about what could be next in science and in spaceflight. I seem to remember seeing a documentary once uh, that involved the making of, uh, of uh, was Going to the Moon. What was the name that you just mentioned? It? Oh, um, From the Earth to the Moon. From the Earth to the Moon. A, a strange pulley that they used to bring the moon closer, making it appear as if a rocket ship were getting closer to the moon. Pretty it, crude, but... It, it is, but it works. Um, one of the prize pieces that we have in the collection at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in the popular culture collection is the original 11-foot studio model of the Star Trek Starship Enterprise mm -hmm. uh, before computer-generated imaging. If you wanted a spaceship in your TV show or in your movie, you had to physically build one and film it. And that is much the way that they made that look like it was zooming through the stars or in front of planets. The model stayed still, and the camera zoomed past it. Simple but, uh, but effective. But very effective. Any way you guys in Washington can get residuals for all the actors on Star Trek? They, they never made a dime in spite, in spite of all of the reruns. I, I don't know what we could do about that, but we certainly um, try to show the connections between the visions that they created and the real histories that we're telling at the National I know Space there is Museum. some resentment amongst the actors because they made so little when others have made so much on, on reruns. We have another caller. Let's bring in Fred calling from Glendale. Go ahead, Fred. You're on the air. Hi, Don. Hi. Yeah, I wondered if your guest might discuss the technology behind the uh, phenomenon of Beam me up, Scotty. Is this something for the future, maybe for real? 
That is a, the transporter is probably the most cited technology if you ask people which, what do they wish was real? Because I think we'd all love to get around uh, rush hour traffic. But it was in fact an innovation that was a, a money saver for Gene Roddenberry and the original creators of Star Trek. They didn't have the budget to show the Enterprise landing on all of these planets. So they came up with a way that they could simply use a dissolve and some sparkles and a little bit of post-production. And then all of a sudden the the crew would show up on whatever planet of the week the adventure was going to be on. And uh, it's something that scientists have played around with. I understand that at a kind of subatomic level, you can sometimes move things from place to place, but we don't yet have anything near uh, what would get me around DC traffic. Why did they decide, do you think, at the, uh, at the museum to have a pop culture corner? It's probably more than a corner, but you mm-hmm. know what I mean. I think that the... Can- St. Louis Science Center has done a wonderful job of showing the social and cultural aspects of the science and technology history that they are showing there. So they have added to the Destination Moon exhibit that is traveling from the Smithsonian that has the Apollo 11 command module, uh, the 50th anniversary of which is coming up next year. And they have really embedded that in a wonderful exhibit that shows a 1960s living room and really puts you back in that moment of what it would have been like to watch watch the Apollo 11 moon landing and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin actually on the moon. And so being able to have toys and games and things like that, I think create a human connection with these technology systems that can be so big. And I heard people as I was going through Destination Moon today saying, oh, I used to have that or I remember Mm. having that toy or that set of dishware in my house. And I think it grounds it for people in a way that makes it very relatable. What exactly are people going to get tonight during your presentation and everything else that's going on? Tonight they have a great program that uh, begins around 8 o'clock with my talk, talking about Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5, looking at the history of space stations as they've been imagined. And then we're go- I'm going to be introducing the feature film, which will be in the Omnimax Theater at 10 p.m. So they're showing Star Trek Beyond, yeah. which is the third part in the J.J. Abrams reimagining of the Star Trek universe and the Kelvin timeline. But there will be activities, there'll be trivia, food, drink, and it's really, I think, a wonderful evening for young people, families to come out and get to think about some of the science behind this science fiction. I was, go- I was going to ask, who do you expect your audience to be? Is probably a lot of 50-year-old nerds. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. I think... Um, when I go out and get to speak, I'm always pleased at the diversity of people who respond to the fictional visions in Star Trek and in these other worlds, and it's a great overlap audience with folks who are also interested in real space flight. Sure, it's going to be a great evening. Margaret, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I hope you have a full house tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, Union Avenue Opera. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. KWMU.